Section 18 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 9, Afghanistan, Part Without wasting time in bandying arguments with the mudbake, I sally forth in search of the others, and meet them just outside the gate. They are returning from hiding the money in the ruins. The crimson flood of guilt overspreads their faces as I raise my finger and shake it at them by way of admonition. With them following behind with all the meekness of discovered guilt, I lead the way back up into the balakana. Arriving there, both of them wilt so utterly and completely, and proceed to plead for mercy with such ludicrous promptness, that my sense of the ridiculous outweighs all other considerations, and I regard their demonstrations of remorse with a broad smile of amusement. It is anything but a laughing matter from their own standpoint, however. The mudbank warns them forthwith that I have threatened to have them bastinadoed and they fairly writhe and groan in an agony of apprehension the khan owing to his more sanguine temperament and a lively conception that the heaviest burden of guilt and accompanying punishment would naturally fall on his own shoulders as the chief of my escort removes his turban and then lies down on the floor and grovels at my feet all the hair he possesses is a little tuft or two left on his otherwise smoothly shaven pate by which he confidently expects at his demise to be tenderly lifted up into paradise by the prophet mohammed after kissing most of the dust off my jivez and banging his head violently against the floor he signifies his willingness to relinquish all anticipations of eternal happiness black-eyed horrors and the like by attempting to yank out even his celestial handhold, hoping that the woeful depth of his anguish and the sincerity of his repentance may prove the means of escaping present punishment. His eyes roll wildly about in their sockets, and in a voice choking with emotion, he begs me pathetically to keep the matter a secret from the Khan of Galakua. Oh, Sahib, Sahib, hoikim no, hoikim no, he pleads and the anguish-stricken Khan accompanies these pleadings with a look of unutterable agony, and furthermore indulges in the pantomime of sawing off his ears and his hands with his forefinger. This latter tragic demonstration is to let me know that the result of exposure would be to have the former, and perhaps the latter, of these useful members cut off, after the cruel and summary justice of this country. The Mirza and Mudbake cluster around and supplement their superior's pathetic pleadings with deep-drawn groans of Allah, Allah, and sundry prostrations toward Mecca. It is a ludicrous and yet a strangely touching spectacle to see these three poor devils groveling and pleading before me, and at the same time praying to Allah for protection in the little Balakana hoping thereby to save themselves from cruel mutilation and lifelong disgrace. 
A watchful eye is kept outside by the Mirza, who does his groaning and praying near the door, and the sight of an Afghan approaching is the signal for a mute appeal for mercy from all three, and a transformation to ordinary attitudes and vocations, the completeness of which would do credit to professional comedians. When a favorable opportunity presents, with much peering about to make sure of being unobserved, his comrades lower the Khan down over the rear wall of the Balakana, and a minute later they hoist him up again with the same show of caution. Producing from his cameraband a red handkerchief containing the stolen kerans, he advances and humbly lays it at my feet at the same time kneeling down and implanting yet another osculatory favor on my jeeves joyful at seeing my readiness to second them in keeping the matter hidden from stray afghans they come dropping in the guilty sowars are still fearful lest they have not yet secured my complete forgiveness consequently the khan repeatedly appeals to me as bur ra thir lays his forefingers together and enlarges upon the fact that we have passed through the dangers and difficulties of the dasht ina umid together the dread spectre of possible mutilation and disgrace as the consequence of their misdeeds pursues these guileful grown-up children even in their dreams all through the night they are moaning and muttering uneasily in their sleep and tossing restlessly about and long before daybreak are they up prostrating themselves and filling the room with rapidly muttered prayers the khan comes over to my comber and peers anxiously down into my face finding me awake he renews his plea for mercy and forgiveness calling me burrather and pleading earnestly hoikim no hoikim no the sharp-eyed wearer of the big busby the cavalry sword and red jack-boots turns up early next morning he dropped in once or twice yesterday and being possessed of more brains than the three sowars put together he gathered from appearances and his general estimation of their character that all is not right these suspicions he promptly communicated to his master aminullah khan is only too well acquainted with the weakest side of the persian character and at once jumps to the conclusion that the sowars have stolen my money sending for me and summoning the sowars to his presence without preliminary palaver he accuses them of robbing me of pool addressing himself to me he inquires sahib parsis namifami do you understand persian kam kam a little i reply suvari pool pool kub rupi rupi jakub oh oh pool kub rupi kub sowari nice Sowari Kaili Kub Adam. In this brief interchange of disconnected Persian, the Khan has asked me whether the Sowars have stolen money from me, and I have answered that they have not, but that, on the contrary, they are most excellent men, both trusty and true. May the recording angel enter my answer down with a recommendation for mercy. During this examination, the little busby-wearing stands and closely scrutinizes the changeful countenances of the accused. He thoroughly understands that I am mercifully shielding them from what he considers their just deserts, and he chips in a word occasionally to Amanullah Khan. Aside, like a sharp lawyer, watching the progress of a cross-examination. The chief himself, 
though ostensibly accepting my statement, has his own suspicions to the same purpose, and before dismissing them he shakes his finger menacingly at the sowars and significantly touches the hilt of his sword. The three culprits look guilty enough to satisfy the most merciful of judges, but relying on my operation to shield them, they stoutly maintain their innocence. Some little delay occurs about starting for Fura, my next objective point on the road to India. The Khan explains that all of his sowars have been sent off to help garrison Herat, that the best he can provide in the form of a mounted escort is an elderly little man whom he points out with an evident doubt as to my probable appreciation. The man looks more like a Persian than an Afghan, which he probably is, as the population of these borderland districts is much mixed. Nothing would have pleased me better than to have had Aminullah Khan bid me go ahead without any escort whatever, but next to nobody at all, the most satisfactory arrangement is the harmless-looking old fellow in the Persian lamb's wool hat, telling him that he has done well in sending his sowars to Herat, and that the old fellow will answer very well as guide. I prepare to take my departure. My guide disappears, and shortly returns mounted on a powerful and spirited grey. Amanullah Khan gives him a letter, and after mutual salams and good office, the old sowar leads the way at a pace which shows him to be filled with exaggerated ideas about my speediness. Irrigating ditches and fields characterize the way for some few miles, after which we emerge upon a level desert whose hard gravel surface is rideable in any direction without regard to beaten trails. Numerous lizards of a peculiar spotted variety are observed scuttling about on this gravelly plain as we ride along. The sun grows hot, but the way is level and smooth, and about ten o'clock we arrive at the oasis of Mahmoudabad, five farsaks from Galakua. Mahmoudabad consists of a few mud dwellings surrounded by a strong wall and a number of tents. Water is brought in a ditch from some distant source, and my faculty of astonishment is once again assailed by the sight of flourishing little patches of Windsor beans. This is the first growth of these particular legumes that have come beneath my notice in Asia. Dropping on them in the little oasis of Mahmoudabad is something of a surprise, to say the least. The men of Mahmoudabad wear bracelets and ankle ornaments of thick copper wire and necklaces of beads. Nothing whatever is seen of the women. So far as ocular evidence is concerned, Mahmoudabad might be a community of men and boys exclusively. The plain continues level and gravelly, and pretty soon it becomes thinly covered with green young camel thorn. The widely scattered shrubs fail to cover up much of the desert's nakedness at close quarters, but a wider view gives a pleasant green plain, out of which the dark, massive mountains rise abrupt with striking effect. Late in the afternoon, the hard surface of the desert gives place to the loose adobe soil of the Furia-Iui bottomlands. For some distance, this is so loose and soft that one sinks in shoe-top deep at every step, and the path becomes a mere trail through dense thickets of reeds that wave high above one's head. Beyond this is a narrow area of cultivation and several walled villages, most of which are distinguished by one or two palms. Arriving at one of these villages, an hour before sunset, the old guide advocates remaining for the night. 
In obedience to his orders, the headman brings out a carpet and spreads it beneath the shadow of the wall, and, pointing to it, says, Sahib Bismillah. Taking the proffered seat, I inquire of him the distance to Fura. Ho says it is across the Fura Rood, and distant one Farsak. Keshti as? O Ichti. Turning to the guide, I suggest, Bismillah Fura. The old fellow looks disappointed at the idea of going on, but he replies, Bismillah. The carpet is taken away again, and the village headman sends a younger man to guide us through the fields and gardens to the river. The Fura Rood is broader and swifter here than the Harood, and when at sunset we reach the ferry, it is to find that the boat is on the other side, and the ferrymen gone to their homes for the night. Several hundred yards back from the river, the city of Fura reveals itself in the shape of a somber-looking high mud wall forming a solid parallelogram. I should judge a third of a mile long and of slightly less width. The walls are crenellated and strengthened by numerous buttresses. It occupies slightly rising ground, and nothing is visible from without but the walls. The old guide shouts lustily at a couple of men visible on the opposite bank, but he only gets shouted back at for his pains. Darkness is rapidly settling down upon us, and I begin to realize my mistake in not abiding by the guide's judgment and stopping at the village. Another village is seen a couple of miles across the reedy lowland to our rear, and thitherward we shape our course. The intervening space is found to consist largely of tall reeds, swampy or overflowed areas, and irrigating ditches. Many of the latter are too deep to ford, and darkness overtakes us long before the village is reached. Finding it impossible to do anything with the bicycle, I remove my packages and lay the naked wheel on top of a conspicuous place on the bank of a ditch, where it may be readily found in the morning. For some reason unintelligible to me, accommodation is refused us at the village. The old guide addresses the people in tones loud and authoritative, but all to no purpose. They refuse to let us remain. While hesitating about what course to pursue, one of the men comes out and volunteers to guide us to a camp of nomads not far away. Following his guidance, a camp of a dozen tents is shortly reached, and in their hospitable midst we spend the night on a piece of carpet beneath the sky. The usual simple refreshments are provided, as also quilts for covering. Upon waking in the morning, I am surprised to find the bicycle lying close to my head. The hospitable nomads, having heard the story of its abandonment from the guide, have been out in the night and found it, and brought it in. The same friendly person who brought us to the camp turns up at daybreak, and voluntarily guides us through the area of ditches and impenetrable reed patches to the river. Several people are squatting on the bank, watching a crew of half-naked men tugging a rude but strong ferryboat upstream toward them. The boat is built of heavy-hewn timber, and capable of ferrying fifty passengers. The Fura Rood, at the ferry, is about two hundred yards wide, and with a current of perhaps five miles an hour. A dozen stalwart men with rude, heavy sweeps propel the boat across, but at every passage the swift current takes it downstream twice as far as the river's width. After disembarking the passengers, the boatmen have to tow it this distance upstream again before making the next crossing. The boatmen wear a single garment of blue cotton that in shape resembles a plain loose shirt. 
when nearing the shore three or four of them deftly slip their arms out of the sleeves bunch the whole garment up around their necks and spring overboard swimming to shallow water with a rope they brace themselves to stay the downstream career of the boat a small gathering of wild-looking men are collected at the landing-place and my astonishment is awakened by the familiar figure of a celestial among the crowd he is a veritable john chinaman beardless face cue almond eyes and everything complete the superior thriftiness of the chinaman over the afghans needs no further demonstration than the ocular evidence that among them all he wears by far the best and the tidiest clothes in this not less than in the strong mongolian type of face is he a striking figure among the people john chinaman is a very familiar figure to me and i regard this strange specimen with almost as great interest as if i had thus unexpectedly met a european his grotesque figure and dress representing so it seems to me at the moment a speck of civilization among the barbarousness of my surroundings is quite a relief to the senses a closer investigation however on the bank while waiting for the guide's horse reveals the fact that he is far from being the john chinaman of chinatown san francisco instead of hailing from the rice fields of Tung, this fellow is a native of kashgaria a country almost as wild as afghanistan a moment's scrutiny of his face removes him as far from the civilized seaboard of celestials of our acquaintance as is the zulu warrior from the plantation darkey of the south except for the above-mentioned comparative neatness of appearance it is very evident that the mongolian is every bit as wild as the afghans about him the people regard me with a deep and peculiar interest very few remarks are made among themselves and no one puts a single question to me or ventures upon any remarks all this is in strange contrast to the everlasting gabble and the noisy and persistent importunities of the persians the afghans are plainly full of speculations concerning my mission who i am and what i am doing in their country although they regard the bicycle with great curiosity the machine is evidently a matter of secondary importance like the imuk chieftain on the dasht e several of these men change countenance when i favor them with a glance whether this peculiar reddening of the face among the afghans comes of embarrassment or what it is it always impresses me as much like the perturbation of a wild animal at finding himself suddenly confronted with a human being hiding part way to the city gate i send the guide ahead to notify the governor of my arrival and to present the letter from aninula khan he is absent but what appears to me an unnecessarily long time and i determine to follow him in and take my chances on the tide of circumstances as in the cities of persia it is not without certain lively apprehensions of possible adventure however that i approach the little arched gateway of this gray-walled afghan city conscious of its being filled with the most fanatical population in the world in addition to this knowledge is the disquieting reflection of being a trespasser on forbidden territory and therefore outside the pale of governmental sympathy should i get into trouble the fascination of penetrating the strange little world within those high walls however ill brooks these retrospective reflections or thoughts of unpleasant consequences and i make no hesitation about riding up to the gate a sharp short turn and abrupt rise in the road occurs at the gate 
necessitating a dismount and a trundle of about thirty yards, when I suddenly find myself confronting a couple of sentries beneath the archway of the gate. The sensation of surprise seems quite in order of late, and these sentries furnish yet another sensation, for they are wearing the red jackets of British infantrymen and the natty peaked caps of the Royal Artillery. The same crimson flush of embarrassment, or whatever it may be, that was observed in the countenance of the Aimuk chief overspreads their faces, and they seem overcome with confusion and astonishment, but they both salute mechanically as I pass in. Fifty yards of open waste ground enables me to mount and ride into the entrance of the principal street. I have precious little time to look about me, and no opportunity to discover what the result of my temerity would be after the people had recovered from their amazement, for hardly have I gotten fairly into the street when I am met by my old guide, conducting a guard of twelve soldiers who have been sent to bring me in. End of section 18 Recording by William Tomko